It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Last time on Tales from the Inverted World, Paul seeks the men responsible for his estranged brother's murder. He can't trust the police to give him answers, and even his own family suspects that he killed his brother Brian. Part two of The Corpse That Danced in Hell's Kitchen begins where the brother's relationship ended for good, over business with mobsters, death threats, and a penchant for violence. I am Shane Cashman, and these are Tales from the Inverted World. Become a member at TimCast.com to get the full after-show conversation exploring this topic and more with special guests. If you comment on the episode at TimCast.com, we will answer questions in the members-only show. This is part two of The Corpse That Danced in Hell's Kitchen. There was no time for patience. He needed to teach these guys a lesson to keep their hands out of his and Brian's business. He had a 73 Buick Riviera, maroon with a white top. He hopped in and took off at the end of the day across the Meadowlands and aimed the car at the trailers. It must have looked like a speedboat. It had the ducktails going up with the sand. He fishtailed all the way across the desert and slammed on the brakes right when he got to the operating engineer's trailer. He ran into the office where two guys were sitting behind a desk, one with his feet up. Paul ran in with his fists out, ready to go. He asked them where the head guys were. The guy must have been so scared of Paul that he didn't hesitate to tell him they were all in the trailer next door. There were about 30 guys sitting at a long table in the trailer. Paul nearly tore the door down and started calling them all a bunch of scumbags. He said, you know I work down here 14, 15 hours a day for $150 a week. You're in here making two to 3,000 a week. And you gotta have your guys steal my cigarettes? He told everyone in that trailer, You guys are so damn lucky. He said this could have been a lot worse for you, waving his fist as he screamed. Paul stood there waiting for someone to make a move. He was ready to take them all on if he had to, but no one had anything to say. He took off and sped out, not realizing it would be the last time he'd see the cantina and the coffee business that he and his brother had worked so hard to build from the ground up. That night, Brian got a phone call. The operating engineers told him that the next time his brother acts up like that, well, when you open up the cantina, his head is going to be on the grill. Brian knew them well enough to know they weren't bluffing. The brothers met at Joseph's restaurant. Brian told Paul there's no way he can go back to work. He knew his brother's temper couldn't be contained, and now that he'd already pulled a stunt like that, they'd do anything to poke him until he snaps again. In the back of his mind, Paul probably also understood this, but wouldn't allow himself to admit it. Why? He asked Brian. Why can't I go back down? 
I don't want to see your damn head on a grill. I'm not worried about it, Paul said. I'm going back. He was one of those guys that lacked whatever chemical it was that caused fear. He said he didn't feel scared of the threat. If they were going to try and take his head off, then so be it. He would fight them like he'd fought everyone else. He always fought to win, and up until that point, he had never really lost. But Brian took them dead serious. He'd spent more time with them. He knew what they had done and what they could do. If you go back, then I'm not going back. Because I ain't going to watch that happen, Brian said. You know what, Paul asked? We're both going back because we owe our mother $40,000. She invested in the company, helped get us started. I'm not leaving until I get that money back to her. Well, I'm not going back, Brian said. Before Brian could tell what was happening, Paul landed a fist square on his brother's face. Brian took the hit. He didn't try to fight back. Paul stood up and told his brother, if that's the case, you better not come back home. Brian understood the threat was real. No one knew his brother's rage and adrenaline better than him. Once Paul had made a decision, he'd stick with it till the bitter end. Brian took his brother's word. Paul did too. He couldn't understand it clearly back then, but he can admit it now. His brother saved his life. After Brian's funeral, Paul made a habit of driving down to Hell's Kitchen almost every night. He went to all the bars and started listening to people talk, asking questions, trying to understand who his brother was dealing with in the days leading up to his murder. He had walked into one of his brother's bars, this place where a lot of professional wrestlers would drink, and stood up in the middle of the place and started yelling, I'm running everything now. This is my brother's bar, and I'll be here every night until I figure out what happened. Some Irish guy, this longshoreman, came up to Paul and said, What do you think you're doing? Who the hell are you? You got nothing to do with this, Paul said. The guy said he was good friends with Brian, and with Brian's partner, Gil. I don't give a damn who you are, Paul said. You ain't telling me nothing. I run this place until Gil gets back, not you. Paul had been running his own bar back home, so at the very least he understood how to keep the place going, and he wanted everyone to know who to come to with information. He'd eventually hear rumors going around that Brian's partner had taken out an insurance policy that would pay off big time if Brian died. Gil finally returned, much later than expected, to find how deeply Paul had entrenched himself into his bar and Hell's Kitchen in general. Where have you been? Paul asked. Your partner gets killed, and you can't come back? Seems to me that this is all a big setup. He dies, you don't come back, and I bet you thought he was all alone. The business partner tried offering Paul work, a new job, some money, a partnership. He asked him if it was true that he had an insurance policy taken out on Brian for $250,000. The partner played dumb. Paul didn't trust him. What's my mother going to get? Paul asked. She's the one who changed his diapers, bought his books, clothed him, everything. And she gets nothing? Meanwhile, you get all the money? The partner said, look, I'll give you the same deal Brian and I had going. Three bullets in the head, Paul said. It wasn't going anywhere. He had no proof, but the guy seemed full of it. Paul kept going down trying to piece together his brother's life any way he could. He was good at getting information from talking to people. Even if it was just a fragment of truth or a slip of the tongue, Paul listened very closely. 
The cops, it seemed, were trying to lead him away from Hell's Kitchen. Even though he was a suspect, they had absolutely nothing to pin him for other than rumors of them threatening each other's lives seven years prior. After spending several weeks in Hell's Kitchen, Paul thought he got somewhat of a handle on what went down. You talk to enough people who hang around and who'd also been drunk and the truth is bound to slip, in part, here and there. Eventually, he sat down at one of his brother's bars for a whole night and kept getting a weird vibe from the bartender. She couldn't look him in the eyes. She couldn't bring herself to say a word to him. She was fine with everyone else, but something about Paul disturbed her. He found out that she was the one that called his brother on the night of his murder to tell him she was about to close up. So Brian went down to his car, started it up, and somewhere between there and the bar, he was murdered. Paul was sure that Brian's business partner had something to do with it. He didn't think he pulled the trigger, but he had a hand in it. He doesn't even think he hired a shooter. He thinks he suckered them into it, fed them bad information. From what he could gather, one of Brian's girlfriends had been from Ireland. This same girl also used to date the man who Paul believed to be the shooter. Word was this Irish girl also dated that longshoreman who gave Paul a hard time when he first walked into the bar in Hell's Kitchen. Rumors around the bars were that Brian's business partner kept instigating the guy, poking him, saying things like, his friend had been dating his ex, and he's been talking all sorts of crap to everyone about you. People were saying it started to drive the guy crazy. He didn't have to be hired. He just didn't realize he was manipulated into doing it. The most likely scenario, according to Paul and everyone he spoke with, was that another mutual friend asked for a ride down to the docks right as Brian was making his way to help close the bar. When the friend got in the car, he pulled a gun on Brian. He made Brian pull over, and another mutual hopped in the back seat, the longshoreman. He put a gun to the back of his head and told him to drive down to 11th Avenue. They had Brian pull up in front of an all-night Spanish club and shot him in the head. Paul knew they were all connected with the Westies, an Irish mob that ran Hell's Kitchen at the time. He wouldn't go to the police with any of the information because he didn't trust them either. He was almost positive the two cops that showed him Brian's apartment had been paid off to obscure the facts. There should have been a lot more cash in Brian's apartment, and there were no bank statements that proved Brian deposited bar money anywhere. What he decided to do, though, was keep an eye on them. The cops, the supposed shooter, Gil, anyone involved. He'd follow them, stay in the shadows. He knew one of the cops had a cocaine problem. It wasn't direct proof of his involvement in covering up Brian's murder, but it seemed fairly obvious to anyone who'd spent enough time watching any of these guys that they were all operating above the law. He wanted to catch them slipping. That would be proof enough. And then, he'd take his revenge. Paul spent the next five years drinking himself to death. He bought a house on a lake in his hometown. He never left the house unless he was called to beat someone up at the bar he'd purchased up the street. For what it's worth, it was a successful bar. So successful, it put three other local bars in the small town out of business within a year. They'd call me when there was trouble at the bar, he said, and I'd go up there to beat the crap out of somebody and then just come back down to the house. That would happen about once every two weeks. 
Sometimes, he'd run up the two steep hills between his house and the bar just to pummel someone. Anything would set him off. He'd call to check in and would hear someone in the background asking the bartender who she's on the phone with. Paul would ask, who said that? She'd tell him, and he'd say, okay, I'll be right there. Then he'd run up the street, burst through the door, and start fighting. He cut down a line of trees outside his house. The stumps were like steps going into the living room window. He sat in a chair in the dark with a gun for years. He had let his hair and beard grow out so much that people started to say he looked like a lion. He tried to watch TV, but he couldn't concentrate. He only thought of violence and revenge. He suspected that the mob guys in Hell's Kitchen would come for him eventually. They must have caught on to his little investigation, and that it was only a matter of time. He was sure that if they came up to do the job, they'd try to get in through the living room window. He wanted them to. He fantasized about it. He'd pull them in through the window, into the dark, and shoot each one. And then he'd burn their bodies in the woods with a flare gun from World War I. Eventually, two guys that wanted his bar figured they might be able to inherit the business if they could only drop Paul off at detox, some long program that'll keep him away for a while. Everyone got tired of waiting for him to die, he said. It was clear that Paul was chasing death through drugs and alcohol and a taste for blood. He'd been drunk so long, he'd been close to getting wet brain, a brain that becomes permanently drunk. Imagine a brain in a bucket of alcohol. His friends told him they were throwing a party just for him. When he asked what for, they said to go to the hospital. Okay, good, he said. He figured he can go to the party and get all the drink and all the cocaine he could possibly want. And at the end of it, tell everybody he's not going anywhere. They got him so drunk, they were able to get him in a car, drive him across the river, and leave him at the hospital for a 28-day program. During the three weeks he was in rehab, he beat up four other clients and one counselor. One of the managers said, Paul, I can't send these people home looking worse than when they got here. He said he was sorry and that anytime he feels like he's about to punch someone, he'll put his hands on the rosary beads instead. Just like how his grandma used to pray for him and his brother. He was haunted by guilt and revenge. When you finally get sober, if you're that lucky, and you're anything like him, Paul said you have an awful lot of guilt and an awful lot of revenge. As a guy who protected people his whole life, it's impossible not to have guilt. He would sit there in the halfway house watching a TV show like Cheers or Jeopardy, and he couldn't make it five minutes without thoughts of killing everybody involved with his brother's murder. The characters on the shows would all warp into people from Hell's Kitchen. He was starting to accept time and distance in order to allow his guilt and lust for revenge to scab over. Thirteen years had passed since his brother's murder, and Paul made a point of putting himself into different programs to keep clean. One night, one of his counselors, a woman he'd become quite friendly with, had given him the basketball diaries to read. And he loved it. She knew nothing about his brother or his history with Hell's Kitchen, but one night she loaned him a copy of the book about the Westies, Sleepers, all about Hell's Kitchen and Irish gangsters. He would read the book again and again, 
each time he'd pick up something new about the characters. He knew these people. He started to connect aliases to real names, remembering bars and avenues and people who even came to Brian's funeral. The book mentions Jerry, the bartender. He talked about Jerry being in the bar around the same time as the longshoreman, a guy who murdered a prison guard that had assaulted him earlier in his life. Paul remembered something that happened at Brian's funeral. Jerry told him he was sorry and that he and his wife loved Brian, but, he said, this is the second time something like this has happened connected to the bar. It's getting too close to home. We're going back to the city, packing up, and leaving for good. When he referred to Brian's death as the second time, Paul knew that the first time was the prison guard getting shot to death by the longshoreman. It confirmed what he had already suspected. The longshoreman had since died. He had mysteriously fallen down three flights of stairs. Paul thought it was the work of gangsters. The police in Hell's Kitchen never officially figured out what happened to Brian. It's still a cold case today. Paul swears if he went and dug up his brother and ran some DNA tests, they'd have all their answers. Paul never got absolute answers, but he felt like he got close enough to the truth. Having some type of closure gave him a chance to heal. The revenge subsided. He even found some compassion for the murderer after reading Sleepers so much. According to the story, the guy had been sexually abused and grew up to be vicious because of it. Paul said he would have wanted to kill everybody too. Even with the need for revenge disappearing, the guilt remained. Paul kept himself in different programs to stay clean. One counselor talked to him about the burden of his guilt. He told Paul that the guilt was born when he was in the middle of the worst of his alcoholism. He told him to write a letter to his parents, grandparents, brother, and anybody else and just tell them that you're trying to live a better, more spiritual life. That you are working on the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous and you're trying to help others. He said not to list all the crap he did back in the day because that'll only bring up the bad feelings. The things that haunt you most. Kind of like dragging a lake. The counselor said that after he wrote his letters, he needs to take them out back and burn them. Send the words up to them. He pointed up to the sky. But if you don't believe in that, he said, you put those letters in an envelope. Have them dropped in your casket and you can hand deliver them yourself. Paul chose to write them and burn them, and he actually felt the crushing guilt lift from his shoulders. Once, he did a nine-month stint of rehab in upstate New York. It was a safe house with about 50 other recovering addicts. All they did was smoke cigarettes and talk, but Paul refused. He only listened. At a certain point, a counselor came up to him and said, Hey, Paul, you've been here three weeks and we haven't heard from you yet. So he sat down in a small room and told them about Brian, the murder, the violence, the regret, the revenge, and the guilt. When he finished, the whole room was silent. Everyone stared. The shock was palpable. The counselor finally broke the silence. Well, Paul, I really don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to say or how to help you. Maybe you should seek out a different recovery panel. Against all odds, Paul, now 74, a grandfather, is still working. He lives in the house he grew up in, hidden on a back road above the river, a dead end that no one ever drives down. 
I've lived in the same town as Paul for nearly 30 years and never knew the road even existed. It's at the edge of a steep drop down to the Hudson. Living on that road almost seems like a defensive maneuver, a way to take high ground and use the geography to his advantage. The same way a general might seize land in an effort to stop an invasion. George Washington chose to turn this area into a fortress for the very same reason, in anticipation of ambushing British warships where the Hudson River bottlenecks in the valley between the mountains. Paul's been ripping up the earth in his backyard to uncover the natural cliff the house was built into. He scraped away the dirt and grass and loose stone with his hands. It's as if he's turned all his attention to sizing up earth itself, the sun, the tectonic plates, the mountains, time, fossils. These are the things that occupy his thoughts now. He spends his time sitting on his cliff with a view of the valley, going through the millennia of natural violence it took to form the mountains and the river below. He speaks of Pangaea and the way tectonic plates eventually smashed into one another. He recounts it as if it's the play-by-play -play of an old fight. Plateaus colliding. Land spiking high up into the air from out of the early ocean. Ice age. Glaciers melting. And over time, the great masses of ice getting pulled south through the crest, eventually splitting it in half, forming two different mountains. Two giant fists. He can see both mountains from his cliff. He knows New York used to be underwater because he used to go to a friend's farm on top of a mountain in Cooperstown, New York, and find seashells buried in the ground. You would think hearing Paul condense millennia down into a few seconds would make him appear smaller against the vastness of time, but somehow it only makes him seem as enduring and treacherous as mountains and glaciers. If you trace the line of men in his family from the mid-19th century, the ones who escaped Ireland and traveled across the Atlantic to New York, it started with a fight and continued to be a fight all the way down to Paul and his brothers. It's easy to think it's all myth passed down from generation to generation, but he's found ancient American Legion newspapers with proof of his ancestors' troubles, the war, the death, the fights. He has tintypes of his ancestor who escaped Confederate prison. He's turned his investigative powers into uncovering his family tree. Plus, he's always listening. Even as a boy in the house, he'd put his ear to the vents and lay on the floor, listening to the old people in the kitchen downstairs talking politics and history. He survived to help pass on the family story to the next one in line, and so on and so forth, until so much time has passed that he himself will be nothing more than legend. Directly across from his yard, on the other side of the river, he studies Breakneck Mountain, a tall, jagged mountain that casts a shadow across the Hudson River in the morning. He points out a face he believes Native Americans carved into the mountainside, something, he says, you can only see under a harvest moon. He says he's seen it. It makes you want to cross the river, climb the mountain, and look back at Paul's house to see if he's carved something into the side of his cliff, like a sign for anyone in the distant future to know he had been here. This is the conclusion of The Corpse That Danced in Hell's Kitchen.
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.